If you've got a Bible this morning, Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to be, and we're going to need the next 30 minutes to really crank out uh, what the Lord has for us this morning. So go ahead and get, get positioned there. Romans chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 10 to 14 this morning. We are uh, a couple of weeks into our series called God's Calling and Election, and we're studying through the book of Romans uh, for you as a, a child of God, for, for you as a Christian this is a very important book of the Bible, uh, practically speaking. It deals with our, our sin problem in chapters 1 through 8, but then it also deals with salvation available through Jesus Christ. It deals with our calling to be sanctified unto Him. All that happens in Romans 1 through 8. And then we hit chapter 9, and God in His, His sovereignty just shifts the emphasis of the book of Romans from, from the Christian to the nation of Israel. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with Israel's past, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 10 deals with Israel's present. Romans chapter 11 deals with Israel's future. And then, and then the, the gear shifts again back to the believer and his service uh, to the Lord, chapters 12 through 16. And so, you know, we started Romans chapter 9, and, and Paul began to share his burden for the nation of Israel. That, that nation was unlike any other nation in the entire Bible, in the entire existence of the world. That, that nation had been given the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the law and the service of God in the tabernacle and the temple and the promises of God and the, and the fathers. And ultimately through that nation came Jesus Christ. They were tremendously a blessed nation. You, you just cannot deny how blessed they were, and God has got some promises and covenants specific to that people group that don't apply to anybody else because, because they are His chosen nation through which He wanted to work. And, and we started unpacking that last week when we studied Abraham, and we saw that God intended through Abram, who would later become Abraham, God intended to make Abraham a great nation. And, and God said, through your seed... I'm going to bless, and, and, and man, listen, God's, God's glory is going to be revealed through this nation of people. Well, Abram, like many of us, got impatient with God. Have you, has, has God kind of not worked according to your calendar, your schedule before? Like, God, hey, hurry up, God, let me get, let's get this thing going. Well, Abram acted a lot like we do. He got impatient with God, and instead of walking in faith, he began to work out things in his flesh, he and his wife had not had any children, and yet God promised all these promises through his seed, through his lineage. And so what do you do, man? You're getting older and older and older, and, and you know what God said, but you look at your circumstances and say, I don't see how this can, can actually work out. And so he acted out in the flesh. He took his wife's handmaid and had a child by her, and that child's name was Ishmael. He had a son, and, and God certainly does not bless the work of the flesh in our lives. And listen, it wasn't Ishmael's fault that he was born, but, but God's calling and God's counting was through the seed of promise. And that was through Isaac. And, and we studied that intensively last week. And so Isaac was, was the one in which that, that lineage and the covenant would continue on from Abraham. God did bless Ishmael, and God said that he's going to be a great nation, and he's going to have princes, but in Isaac was the seed counted. Because later in Genesis 22, when, when God is tempting or testing Abraham's faith, he says, I want you to, to bring your only son, 
your only begotten son, Isaac. And so even though Ishmael was a son of Abram's flesh, he was not the son of faith and the child of promise, and God only counts what's done by faith. And we saw last week that God was working through a nation of people, and this is really important as we get into this passage of Scripture this morning in Romans chapter 9. Pick it up in verse 10, and we're going to read down to verse 14. The Bible says, And not only this, in other words, not only this that we learned last week about Abraham and Isaac, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. All right, so we need to pray and get God's wisdom as we look at this passage. So join me again as we pray. Father, we, we come to you humbly. Father, this is your word. We want to come to it with a believing heart, and we also want to come to it fearfully and, and to approach it rightly. And we want to make right divisions in your word according to your word. And so may your Holy Spirit teach us today, give us the understanding that we stand in need of, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so, so last week we read about two sons, one that was accepted, one that was not counted, Ishmael. This, this morning we're going to talk about two more sons in Romans chapter 9. We're going to talk about Jacob and Esau. And listen, as, as we get into this text, many times when people approach this portion of Scripture without question, there are many that wrestle with this portion of Scripture. So much so that they would say, see, God has absolutely chosen and elected some individuals to be saved. In other words, God has absolutely chosen and elected those whom He would love. And God has already de determined and chosen those whom He will hate. And God did that all the way in eternity past before the creation of the world. And, 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 and listen, that, that is a common teaching in religious circles today. But I want you to understand that's been a common teaching for probably the last 2,000 years. And we'll get into that in just a second. This is a portion of Scripture that, as Peter warned, if we're not careful, we will wrestle out of context to our own destruction. As a matter of fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, concerning Paul's epistles, here's what Peter writes, and this isn't on the screen, but I just want you to listen to the verse. 2 Peter 3 and verse 15 says this, "...an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, listen, in which are some things hard to be understood. Peter, the Apostle Peter, said that the Apostle Paul, God was using him to write Scripture. Peter confirmed that, and he also said that there are some things that God is using Paul to write and speak about, that are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. And, and the, the rest is the word wrestle, like W-R-E-S-T. They are unlearned and unstable, and they wrestle with these things as they do also with the other scriptures, and the Bible says, to their own destruction. In other words, 
You can't just open the book and assume what it means. God has a process of, of biblical interpretation. And it's not a private interpretation. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that if we don't compare Scripture with Scripture, that the Spirit of God will not reveal truth to us. The only way that we can understand the Bible is not to read into the Bible what we think it means, but is actually to compare Scripture with Scripture and let Scripture define itself. And, and I'm going to take some, some time on the front end to establish what we're about to do because everybody's a different place in our church, and I'm thankful for that. We've got new believers. We've got believers that are, that are certainly seasoned, veterans of Bible study. We have newer people. We're so thankful. Listen, for everybody's here. I just want to take the, the time to say we can't assume anything about Scripture. We, we don't want to be unlearned and unstable as we approach Scripture. There are some things that are hard to be understood, but God and His Holy Spirit can reveal those things as we approach Scripture the way God tells us to approach it. And, and, and that's the point this morning. And so there is a teaching in our culture of Christianity that would use this passage of Scripture to teach that God has elected some individuals to be saved, and God has also not elected some individuals to not be saved. In other words, He has preordained or predestined them to not be saved, to be rejected by God. And he did all of this in eternity past, and, and that is a partial understanding or a partial representation of what is called Calvinism. And, and so this morning, the first half of our message, we're, we're going to just shed some light on this doctrine that is, ain't nothing new under the sun, as my brother in Ecclesiastes wrote, and... Uh, and so this thing is not a new thing. It may be trendy and popular today, but it's certainly not new at all. And so point number one in our notes, we want to get a general overview of Calvinism because, because we need to understand what's being taught from these passages in modern-day Christianity. But we're going to take the time on the, on the back end and actually see what the Bible says. Are you, you guys okay with that? All right, so, so here's what we're going to do. Calvinism is credited to a man named John Calvin. And I put the dates of, of his life in your notes, uh, 1509 to 1564. Uh, history tells us that John Calvin was a Catholic priest. He was a part of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which means that he was Catholic, but you know, he began to move away from Catholic doctrine. Uh, he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church around 1530. Many of us associate Martin Luther with the Protestant Reformation, where there were other guys that were a part of that Reformation movement. Uh, but he is the guy that kind of gets pinned uh, with the, the doctrine, the teaching of, of what commonly is called Calvinism, Calvinism or Reformed theology. He, 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 he's the guy. I mean, that, that just gets the, the credit for it. But, but when you study history, you find that, that Calvin and his belief system concerning election and predestination and God choosing individuals to get saved and not get saved, actually didn't start in 1500. It actually started all the way in 350 to, 3 to 400, 350 to 400, 430, with a guy named Augustine. And so Calvinism may be given credit to John Calvin for its basic belief system, but there was a man named Augustine that really began to push this agenda. Now, 350 to 430 A.D. comes before... 1500 A.D. 
And, and man, you have to really know a lot of things to get this job that I got. I just, <laughs> I'm just telling you. So if you can do simple math, you probably qualify to be a pre- preacher. All right. So 1,200 years, 11 to 1,200 years before that. Uh, I, I like what Pastor Alan Shelby says concerning the book of Acts. You know, w- when we read through church history, you have to start in Acts to get a proper understanding of church history. And so when you read through church history, you read through the book of Acts, and at the end of the book of Acts, the church goes into a tunnel, historically speaking. And there's not much written about it for a couple of hundred years because of persecution, because saints that believe what you believe, that God's word is God's word, and the ministry is is the ministry, and they were just doing what God called them to do, they were being slaughtered, they were being killed. And the word of God was being corrupted. And so the church at the end of the book of Acts goes into a tunnel. It emerges just a couple of hundred years later as something completely different. In other words, when you study church history, you will see, and I'm going to use this phrase, the early church, and I don't mean the church in the book of Acts. I mean the early church as recorded in church history is not the same as what you see in the book of Acts. It's not the same. Pastor Greg Axe, concerning church history, would say, you need to focus on the activity of the local church to get church history right. In other words, if you just look at church history as Christendom, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to get a skewed understanding of what really was happening in history. Now, if you're a history buff, uh, you may know of a name of a man named Constantine. Uh, And he showed up uh, about 100 years before Augustine. He was a a strong Roman leader, and under his leadership, he unified a political and a religious system in Rome. It was religious, it was political, and it ultimately became what today we would call the the Catholic Church. It it was a political-religious system. There's, there's no record of Constantine's conversion to Christ. He was baptized right before he, was, before he died, hoping that his baptism would somehow wash away uh, the sins that he committed as a Roman ruler. And, and if you've spent any time in the Bible, you know that baptism doesn't wash away sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sin. So there's no profession of faith at all in his life. And so he existed about 100 years before Augustine, And so Augustine shows up, and this political religious system is already in place. And Augustine is a Catholic priest within that system. And here's some of the things that Augustine taught. Uh, By the way, the, the Catholic Church still recognizes Augustine as a saint. He would teach things such as this. He taught that God orders all things while preserving human freedom. Prior to 396, he believed that predestination was on God's foreknowledge of whether individuals would believe in Christ and that God's grace was a reward for human assent. Later, in response to a man named Pelagius, Augustine said that the sin of pride consists in assuming that we are the ones whom whom God chose or that God chooses us in his foreknowledge because of something worthy in us. In other words... He would say that God's grace alone causes an individual act of faith. In other words, God chooses upon whom He will bestow His grace, and it is irresistible, and you will be saved. And and some will not be the recipient of God's grace, therefore God has predetermined or pre-elected that they will not be saved. So, So this is happening 
in the early church, what I'm, what I'm coining as the early church, after the book of Acts, but well before 1500. And it's associated with Augustine in a system set up by Constantine that is the Roman Catholic political religious system. Well, the basic tenets of, of what we'll call Calvinism, because that's the, the modern language today, consists basically of five different points. The first point in their theology is a point of total depravity. In other words, man is totally depraved, totally unable because of sin to even have the will to choose to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so when you listen to, again, the teaching on this topic, uh, total depravity, we would say, well, yeah, man's totally depraved because of his sin, but the definition, according to their, their theological system, is that he's so depraved that he's unable to have a free will to choose God. In other words, I can't choose God, God has to choose me if he has preordained or preselected me to be saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so that's total depravity. The second point in their system is unconditional election. And literally, in a nutshell, what that means, and again, if we had an hour for each of these, we could expose these for what they are, but unconditional election asserts that God has chosen from eternity those who, will bring, who He will bring to Himself, not based on foreseen virtue, merit, or faith in those people, but rather God's choice that's unconditionally grounded in His mercy alone. In other words, only He chooses whom He will save. God has chosen from eternity past to extend mercy to those whom He has chosen and to withhold mercy from those not chosen. By the way, most people that believe in this religious system, ironically, are chosen. I mean, I want to meet a Calvinist that's not chosen. That's what I want to meet. It doesn't make sense. Number three, limited atonement. Limited atonement. And this portion of their belief system means it could also be called particular redemption or definite atonement. And what they assert with this point is that Jesus' substitutionary atonement was definite and certain in its purpose and what it accomplished, but only the sins of the elect were atoned for by Jesus' death. They don't believe that the atonement is limited in value or power, but, but they would say it's limited in its reach. Because it's not for everyone, it's only limited to those that are unconditionally elected. Number four, the fourth tenet is irresistible grace. Uh, and, it, and it goes by a couple of other names, but, but the point is... In, an irresistible grace, that the grace of God is effectually applied to those whom He has determined to save, in other words, what they call the elect, and overcomes their resistance to obeying the call of the gospel. In other words, if God has elected you to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot reject it or resist it. It's irresistible. It, it is irresistible grace. Uh, when God sovereignly purposes to save someone, that individual certainly will be saved. And, and they base this premise on the Holy Spirit of God 
and his influence that it cannot be resisted, although Acts chapter 7 and verse 51 says he most certainly can be resisted. And we'll get into the biblical doctrine of that a little bit later. So, so they would teach that if you're, if you're saved, it's because God willed it, and you had no choice to resist his will, even though the Bible is full of examples of people that have resisted his will. And then lastly, the, the last point of Calvinism is, is the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. In other words, those that have been unconditionally elected and have been irresistibly forced to receive God's grace will persevere to the end. In other words, they are going to live exceptionally holy lives. They're going to live set apart from God. Uh, they're... they're a, definition of perseverance of the saints asserts that because God is sovereign and his will cannot be frustrated by humans or anything else, those whom God has called into communion with himself will continue in faith until the end. In other words, if you quote-unquote backslide, if you fall away in your relationship with God, you probably were never elected to start with. Okay. And so the, the, the modern acronym for this system of belief is Calvinism. The five points are, are many times referred to as the word TULIP, the five letters of those first five points. And, and, and listen, man, I have brothers and sisters that are friends that, that certainly ad adhere to this particular doctrine, and, and I love them in the Lord. But we have a, a system of Bible study at this church and belief system based on Romans 3, 4, that says, let God be true, and every man a liar. And that includes me. That includes me. This book, rightly divided, is the authority, not a theological system. There's a difference between a theological system and biblical authority, and you might want to write that down. There is a difference between a theological system and biblical authority. And, and we want to err on the side of biblical authority. That the Bible defines our theological system. Are we okay with that, that statement? And so I wanted to unpack that because as we get into these verses, and maybe even when we read those verses, you thought, wow, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. God picked one and hated the other. And if God did that then, then, then God does that now. And maybe they're right. Well, we haven't actually studied the Bible yet, have we? We just read a portion of Scripture. So now let's do what God taught us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's compare Scripture with Scripture and let the Spirit of God reveal to us what the Word of God teaches. And what we're going to see in our notes, point number two is this. We're going to see a tale not of two men or two individuals. We're going to see a tale of two nations. And those nations are represented by Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Last week, we saw that God was interested in establishing a nation, and ultimately that nation was the nation of Israel, and God had to elect which one he was going to work through because of Abram's sin, because he had Ishmael in the flesh. And so God just had to go on record and say, no, it's going to be the child of promise that I'm going to work through. Well, as we get into this portion of Scripture, we're going to see again this tale of two nations. Go back to Romans 9, verses 10 to 11. And so the Bible says, and not only this, in other words, that this is what we talked about last week, Abraham, Isaac, 
But when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, and, and at verse 11, do you see a punctuation right there? And what is that piece of punctuation, those of you that are English students? Quotation marks. No, it's not quotation marks. It's a parenthesis, right? So verse 11 is a parenthesis, and it reads all the way through verse 11, and then it picks up in verse 12. It, it is said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. So, so when you have a parenthesis, by the way, punctuation matters in the English language. Punctuation matters in your Bible. Okay? Because we're reading a language. And so verse 11 is a parenthesis. When you put words in a parenthesis, it's a side remark. It's an afterthought. So what you do when you come to a portion of Scripture that has a parenthesis is you put it aside, and then you read the text, and then you put it back into the thought. Does that make sense? So let's read it again. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. For the children not yet being born, neither having done good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Not of works, but of him that calleth. Do you see how that works? That's the proper way to read that portion of Scripture. And so, and so listen, let's, let's, let's deal with what the text says. Okay, the Bible says, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to find this story back in Genesis chapter 25 of Rebekah and Isaac and her conception. And we're going to find in Genesis chapter 25 that she was barren, that she hadn't had any children, and that God is going to, to bless her with children. Actually, she gets pregnant and she has twins. She has two children in her womb. And so let's pick up the story in Genesis 25. The, the, the font is maybe a little small, but hopefully you can read that. This is the reference which Paul is directly quoting in Romans chapter 9. It comes from Genesis chapter 25. So let's read the story. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of uh, Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him. And Rebekah his wife conceived. Here it is, look at verse 22. And the... Children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. By the way, side note, God answers prayer. God answers prayer. Isaac and his wife were barren. What did Isaac do? He entreated the Lord for his wife, and the Lord answered. And not only did she get pregnant, but she had twins. So he like double blessed her. And then these, these children are struggling. They're fighting in her womb. And she's like, um, this is miserable. <laughs> Why is this happening? And so what does she do? She inquires of the Lord. She prays. And oh, by the way, verse 23, the Lord said unto her. We need to be people of prayer. I'm just, I'm just making a side note. God, God, God answers prayer. God answers prayer. So the Lord said unto her, here's what he said, and here's the key. To... Nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the... And isn't that what Rome, Romans chapter 9 quoted? The elder shall serve the younger. 
And God tells us very clearly that, that, that what he's talking about is two nations and two manner of people. Now listen, that's kind of offensive, by the way. Uh, uh, I see you're pregnant. Yeah, you got some nations in there? What's going on? I mean, what is that? <laughs> you're really getting out there. Okay, don't ever say that. Did she have two nations in her womb, or did she have two children? She had two children. So, so is his comment about two nations literal to those two children, or is it representative of the result of those two children? It's representative. It, 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 God's foreknowledge, and, and we'll talk about foreknowledge probably next week, God is omniscient. He knows all things. But in the, in the midst of his foreknowledge and his omniscience, you still have a free will. So he knows all things, and yet he still allows you to have a free will. So God knows that these two children represent and will become two nations and two manner of people. The elder is going to serve the younger. And so when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her, in her womb. The first came out red all over like a hairy garment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not just his head, man, all over. <laughs> I gave birth to a piece of carpet. Here he is. Okay, so. <laughs> Red carpet. <laughs> and they called his name Esau. And after that came out his brother, came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three score years old when she bare them. Okay, so you know the story, man. Isaac is the child of promise the seed through which God is going to bless and bring about this nation. He's taken Rebecca to wife. She's barren. He prays for her. She has children. By the way, Isaac shows for us a man of faith because he doesn't act out in the flesh. He actually trusts the Lord with his seed and lineage, right? And so, and so he shows us a difference between him and Abraham. So he doesn't try to help God out. She gets pregnant. She has twins. And the Bible says there are two nations and two manner of people. Okay, so let's deal with this. Number one, we're going to look at these two nations. We're going to look at these two nations. And the first one is going to be represented through Jacob. And Jacob for us, again, points to the nation of Israel. Listen, Jacob is an individual. But when God uses the name Jacob in the Bible, context determines meaning. Is God talking about the individual named Jacob, or is God talking about a nation of people named Jacob? Do you see the difference? And there is a literal application of the context. And so, and so as we study the Bible, God tells us in Genesis 32 and verse 28, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but what? That was an individual whom God was talking to. And yet, in Romans 11... The Bible tells us that God calls Israel by name. So all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from who? The nation of people. It's not just the individual. He says in the very next verse, this is my covenant unto not him, them. Jacob is a person. Jacob is a nation. 
How do you, how do you know the difference? It's context. And God told you in Genesis that, that she is bearing, in Genesis 25, two nations and two manner of people. The elder nation or manner of people will serve the younger nation or manner of people. Okay, so let, let, let's deal with this two-nation thing. We talked about Jacob, who is Israel, and, and is represented as the federal head, if you will, of Israel. And then Esau is the other son. Now listen, in the Bible... God does not waste any small amount of space concerning this guy named Esau. Esau equals Edom. And Edom is a nation. And listen, I'm going to give you six references. There's, there's more references. I mean, listen, God, God wastes no time in this. Genesis 25 and verse 30. Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage. We'll get into the story of that in just a second. For I am faint. Therefore, his name was called... So, so God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and Esau's name was changed from Esau to Edom, who would be the father of the Edomites, a nation of people. Genesis 36 and verse 1. Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Genesis 36 verse 8. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is can I just tell you, when God tells you something twice, you, when He tells you once, you need to pay attention. When He tells you twice, you need to really pay attention. When He tells you six times, He knows we're slow. <laughs> okay, Genesis 36, verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. Genesis 36, 19. These are the sons of Esau, who is Edom. And these are their dukes. Genesis 36, 43. Duke uh, Magdiel, Duke Iram, these be the dukes of Edom, according to their habitation and the land of their possession. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. I mean, God tells you very clearly that there are two nations in her womb. And those two nations are Israel and Edom. Two manner of people, and that's the next blank. Not only are they two nations, but they're two manner of of people. In other words, they're going to have different characteristics. These people groups, these nations, they're going to be different. And again, if we were to go back and study Jacob and the lineage of people that come from him and the nation of people, well, we see that. And ultimately, Jacob is going to give birth to the 12 tribes of Israel Jacob himself married a wife that pleased his father Isaac. In Genesis 28, he, he went and served Laban seven years, and he was deceived by Laban and got Leah. And then he served seven more years, and he got Rachel, whom he loved. And, and from them and their handmaids, the, the twelve tribes of Israel came about. The Bible tells us that God visited Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, gave him a dream or a vision of Jacob's ladder, and confirmed the promises of Abraham and Isaac in Jacob. In Hebrews 11 and verse 21, we see that Jacob was a man of faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed the sons of Joseph and worshipped. And so listen, Jacob had his issues, but he was a God-fearing man and understood that the calling of God on his life and the people, the manner of people which would come through his lineage, the nation of Israel. 
And we've already established that in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. They're tremendously blessed. Well, Esau, the manner of people that came from him, Esau himself was a cunning hunter. The Bible tells us in Genesis 25 and verse 27. He was a cunning hunter. He was crafty. And uh, if you study that word craftiness, you'll end in Ephesians 4 and, and a couple of other places. By the way, the first hunter in the Bible ever mentioned in, is in Genesis 10, and his name was Nimrod. He's a great picture or type of the Antichrist. And so if the very first hunter is, is established as a picture of the Antichrist, and Esau is a cunning, a cunning hunter, well, you can see that he's probably going to be anti Christ, anti-God. The Bible tells us that Esau forsook his birthright for pottage, for bowl of chili. He gave away his, his birthright. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 12 and verse 16, the Bible says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. Esau is compared to a fornicator and a profane person who for one morsel of meat gave away his birthright, sold it. He's more concerned with his flesh than, than what his father wanted to give to him. The Bible tells us that Esau took wives that did not please his father Isaac. In Genesis chapter 25, it says when he was 40 years old, he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Abiri, the Hittite. Oh, and he didn't just take one wife. He says, and he also took Bashamath, man, anyways, okay, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. In other words, they're sitting at home thinking, can you believe our kid married a Hittite? Can you believe that, 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 that he went outside the bounds, if you will, of our people? That's called unequally yoked, being unequally yoked. It really matters who you marry, by the way. And there's a heavenly father that you ought to desire to please with your human relationships. Can I get practical? We're, we're kind of heavy on the doctrine. Let's get practical. It really matters who you marry. And by the way, you've got an earthly father that it ought to please. And an earthly mother that it ought to please. You okay? Get back to Jacob, right? And he's, oh, get off my toes here. Yeah, it matters who you marry. And, and you want to please God, your father, but you want to please your your. Your, your mother and father as well, and uh, their insight into your life is important. We find in Genesis 28 that Esau actually goes a, a step further, and he actually marries into Ishmael's family. So he's already got two wives, and then he goes and he takes another wife from Ishmael, Abraham's son. Can you see how this guy, I mean, it, it, listen, verse 8 says, When Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan please not his father, then he went unto Ishmael. I mean, this guy has just absolutely got it against his mother and father and rebels against it. So Esau becomes the Edomites, those that reject God, those that reject pleasing their father, those that reject the blessing of God through a lineage. And the Bible says that the elder shall serve the younger. Okay, this is where it gets really simple in the Bible. Do you mean the elder nation will serve the younger nation? In other words, the Edomites will serve Israel. Or do you mean Esau will serve Jacob? Well, this is a tale of two nations. And, and in your notes, I put this. 
There is not a single instance of biblical evidence that Esau, as an individual, ever served Jacob. Now listen, that becomes really important when you get in Romans chapter 9. Do you understand me? Because, because either God is a liar, because God said that, that Esau, the, the elder, will serve the younger. Either God is a liar, or God is not dealing with individuals. God is dealing with nations. He's dealing with manner of people. If you're going to use Romans chapter 9 to prove that God pre-elected, pre-ordained, pre-selected who will get saved, Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved, then you had better back it up with where Esau the individual served Jacob. And in this Bible, you will not find it. What, what you will find is a nation serving the nation of Israel. And you find that in 1 Samuel chapter 2. One instance is this man named Doeg. The Bible says that he was an Edomite. And he served, he was of the servants, plural, of who? And who was Saul, king of Israel? So an Edomite, the Edomites became servants of Saul. He was the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verses 12 to 13, this is very clear. Moreover, Abishai, the, the son of Zariah, slew the Edomites in the valley of Salt, 18,000. And he put garrisons where? In Edom. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And David is the king of Israel. And the Edomites are of Esau and Edom. And they served Israel. Individual? No. Nations. Manner of people. Go back to Romans chapter 9. We've got we to hurry. Is this helpful? I hope it's helpful. We're, we're not even like on the tip of the iceberg yet. Next week, you've got to come back for next week because, because we have to we have to go to the Bible and learn what the Bible says. We don't read our theological system into the Bible. We let biblical authority determine our theological system. Go back to Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. And let's get to kind of that last verse. Again, God is accomplishing His purpose through election. God is electing a nation of people through which He's going to work. It has nothing to do with individual salvation. It has nothing to do with predestined to be saved or not be saved. God's, God's unconditional election and irresistible grace and all those things. Listen, it just plainly tells us what it's talking about. It's two nations. It's two manner of people. Then we get to verse 13 where everybody loses their, their mind. Verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And you would say, okay, Jay, I heard everything you said up to this point. But it says plainly right there that God loved one and he hated the other. I mean, God just showed you that he chooses whom he loves and he chooses whom he hates. How can you argue with that, Jay? Right? That's what you're thinking. Well, can you back up to the first four words in the verse? Because those are really important. As it is written... And then after those four words is a statement of what was written. Does that make sense? It's an, it's an Old Testament quote. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. 
And any honest student of the Bible is going to ask, where's that written? I mean, it says, as it is written, so you've got to ask the question, hey, where, where was it written? I mean, does anybody want to know where it was written? Okay, three of you do, praise the Lord. The rest of you want to eat lunch, that's fine. The answer, the answer is Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. As it is written, okay, so we're going we're gonna to do what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us. We're going to compare Scripture with Scripture. What is he talking about? What does he mean, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated? Well, it was written. Where was it written? Well, it was written in Malachi. Let's read it. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi is a prophet to who? Nation of Israel. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build it, but I will throw it down. I'm against Edom. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation, how long? Forever. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of, of, of Israel. Okay, so, so what does this mean? Well, it means a lot. Here's what you need to know. Malachi is written fourteen to 1,500 years after Genesis chapter 25. In other words, what God said was going to happen in Genesis 25, two nations are going to come through Jacob and Esau. Two manner of people are going to come. The elder is going to serve the younger. Oh, and by the way, 1,500 years later, it came true. Everything God said just came true. In other words, his foreknowledge foreknew that those nations were going to become, one would fear God and serve God and follow God, one would be against God and oppose God and be servant to the children of Israel. This has nothing to do with God choosing to love some individuals and hating other individuals. By the way, you also need to know that in Genesis 25, the Abrahamic covenant is in effect. God made a promise to Abraham and said, look, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Anybody that blesses you, I'm going to bless. And anybody that curses you, I'm going to... Oh, you read it too. Anybody that curses you, I'm going to curse. In these shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, there's this little verse in Genesis 27 that says this. Esau, what did he do to Jacob? He hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father at hand, then I will, I'm going to slay my brother Jacob. And God says, you know what, man? I've got, I got a covenant and a promise and, and, a, and a seed that I'm going to work through. And you better bless them. And if you bless them, I'll bless you. But if you curse them, well, I'm going to curse you. And if you hate them, well, I'm just giving you what you want. I'm going to hate you. You see, you see Malachi 
1,500 years after Genesis 25, it doesn't prove that God has already pre-selected individuals to be saved. What it proves is what God said in Genesis 25 came to pass. That there are two nations, that there are two manner of people. The elder is going to serve and has served the younger and that God is still working his plan out in spite of all that. Amen? Okay, so listen, we, 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 we had to take some time this morning to educate, if you will, and, and unpack. I, I, I never like going to a scripture and saying this is what it doesn't teach. But we live in a culture of Christianity that has such kind of a skewed understanding of biblical interpretation that their theology defines the Bible. And I want you to understand that, that when you study the Bible and you compare Scripture with Scripture, the answer, although it initially it may seem hard to understand, the answer is within the pages of that book. And the Spirit of God is able to reveal it. Now next week, we're going to get in the next few verses and we're going to start talking about Pharaoh. And again, God's going to give us another example Oh man, well, he just pre-selected Pharaoh to, to fall so that God's glory could be manifest. Okay, well, we'll talk about it. But we've, we've got two out of the three already, and God's kind of made it very clear for us what God is doing and how he's dealing in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? And so, and so again, I, I want to encourage you to come back next week. Listen, in closing, I, again, a lot of information this morning. I hope it's not confusing. We'll post this on the website if it is. Here's what I want to encourage you with today. God certainly has worked and, and has blessed a nation. Um, and God has tremendous promises and covenants for that, that people, and He's not done with them yet. And God also has tremendous promises uh, and blessings to you as an individual. And if God is faithful to His people, and He is, you can trust that God's faithful to you. And, and I want to encourage you, listen, wherever you are, use that example of, of Rebecca and Isaac when things don't seem to be working out the way you think they should work out, take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Inquire the Lord. Spend time not in your flesh trying to make it work. Spend time in faith, trusting that God's going to do what He's called us to do. All right? And, and I want to encourage you with that. So let's pray, and then we'll dismiss. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you again for, for the time. It goes quickly, Lord, every Sunday.